Heavenly Father, we uh, are so grateful that we can gather together in your name as your church this morning. And Father, we can just um, worship you. We have sung these wonderful songs, Lord, where we have declared your goodness and we have declared your attributes, Father. All the wonderful things that you have done in us and for us. Father, now we want to come and we want to ask that your Holy Spirit, which is here in this place, that it would speak to us. That, Father, you would grow us and that, Father, you would help us to mature and that you would let us be the salt and the light that you have called us to be. So, Father, we come, we lay down our lives, we open our ears and we open our minds to receive what it is that you would speak to us this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For the story of a preacher who was one of these open-air preachers, he would go down on the weekends and he would stand outside of the store in the downtown And he would just preach to all the people as they were walking by. And one day he was standing there and along came this homeless guy. This bum comes walking down the road. And he stops next to the preacher. And the preacher turns to him and sees this guy and his clothes are filthy and he kind of smells. And and he says, is there something I can do for you? And the man says, as a matter of fact, yes there is. And the preacher is very excited. He says, oh, do you want to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And the man says, no, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And he says, well, well do you want me to, to, to tell you a little bit more about the Bible and about what it says and about who Jesus was? And the bum says, no, no, I, I don't want you to do that. He says, well, well, what do you want? And the guy looks at him and he says, well, preacher, I noticed that your Bible... The, the, the pages of that Bible are very, very thin. It looks like they would be perfect for cigarettes. Could you uh, give me your Bible so that I could use it to make homemade cigarettes with? And the preacher thought about that for a moment, and he thought to himself, well, I have lots of Bibles, and this is an old one. And, and he had an idea. He said, yes, you can have my Bible, but for every page you tear out to make a cigarette with, I want you to first read it. And so he gave him the Bible, and... He went on his way, and the preacher forgot all about it. But about four months later, he was back out there again on that street corner. And now this nicely dressed young man comes walking up to him, and and he says, Preacher, it's me. And he looks at this guy, and he says, "Um, Do I know you? He goes, Yeah, I was a guy four months ago. Don't you remember? I came up, and, and, and I wanted your Bible. And the preacher was amazed at the transformation. He said, Well, what happened? Well, the guy says, You know, I, I, I smoked Matthew, and I smoked Mark, and I smoked Luke, and then John smoked me. <laughs> and you know, that is the power of God's Word. We believe that the Bible is power. We believe that the Bible is not just another book. We believe that there's power within it. As Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of salvation. It's special. Last week we talked about, does God exist? And we offered some arguments from general revelation as to why we believe that there is a God. But the next logical question in our series on hot topics that then comes up is this. Well, if God exists... What is he like? I mean, let's face it, there's all kinds of different religions that believe that God exists. Some say he's like this, and some say he's like that. And a lot of them have a book. They have a special book, and they believe that, you know, you can get to know God through that religious book. So, the question for us this morning is, 
How do we know that our book is right and their book is wrong? How can we be so sure that this thing that we have, this book that we have, is reliable? The Christian faith is based upon a single fact. I mean, if you've ever had people make fun of you because of your faith, if you've ever had people say to you, oh, you believe in those old fairy tales, that superstitious nonsense, why are you a Christian when, when you know, science today has disproven all this kind of stuff? Why do you believe in all this nonsense? The Christian faith is based upon a single truth, and that is that God has revealed himself to us through his word, and that that word is reliable. As we all learned as kids, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Suppose you were on the internet and you went to a, a, a chat site and, and, and you were talking to someone online. The only thing that you could really know about that person is what that person revealed about themselves to you. Oh, you can look at the kind of the, the language that they use and the way that they use it, the grammar, and you can kind of come up with some conclusions. But really, the only way you could absolutely for sure know what that person is like, how tall that person is, is it male, is it female, where they live, the experiences that person has, the character of that person, the only way you could know them is by how they reveal themselves to you. And what we can know about God is what God has revealed about himself to us through the Bible. And we know that because God is good and because God does not lie, that what he has revealed to us about himself is the truth. Psalm 19 verse 7 says this, that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. Do those words describe your Bible? Do those words describe what you're holding in your hands? If you look at that and you say that they're sweet, they're more precious than gold, that they endure, that they're righteous, that all these things that we just read, does that describe your outlook of the Bible? You know, there's a lot of people today that believe that the Bible, specifically the New Testament, cannot be trusted. That it's been changed, that it's been tampered with, that it's an unreliable witness. That you can't really believe the things that the New Testament says. As I have spoken with people, there are usually three different objections that come up when you talk about the New Testament. And I want to look at each one of those today. Number one, some people argue that you cannot trust the New Testament because really, the crowds that lived at the time of Jesus made everything up. The people who saw Jesus misunderstood what he was trying to say. That Jesus was just a nice guy, he was just a good moral teacher, but because he did a, maybe a few miracles, that the crowds misunderstood who he was and they claimed that he was God. And let me tell you, this is not an uncommon thing. In the day and age in which Jesus lived, especially in the Gentile polytheistic culture in which 
surrounded Israel, this was not an uncommon thing. Remember that story in the book of Acts? Acts 14.8 where it says, In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and he had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking and Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed. And he called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that the man jumped up and began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laotian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. In other words, Paul and Barnabas do this miracle. All the people decide, oh, they must be gods. And so they bring all these things to sacrifice. Maybe Jesus was like that. Maybe the crowds just misunderstood who Jesus was. And they just thought that he was God when really he wasn't. Well, that's not much of an argument. Because it breaks down because the eyewitnesses who heard Jesus speak know that he never claimed to be just a man. That Jesus did in fact claim to be something much more. That Jesus claimed to be God. In John 8 verse 58, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he answered, before Abraham was born, I am not I was, not I will be, I am. That is the name of God. That means that I always have existed, I always will exist. And the crowds understood what he was saying. At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Again in John 10 verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father, am one. In other words, I and God are equals. I am God. And again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. The crowds understood what he was saying. His message was very, very clear. And a matter of fact, that's why they crucified him. They didn't crucify Jesus just because he was a nice guy. They didn't crucify him even because he was doing nice things. Or because he was healing people or raising the dead or any of that kind of stuff. They crucified him because he claimed to be God. John 19.6 says, As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis of a charge against him. But the Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God incarnate. And that's why they killed him. After Jesus comes back from the dead, he appears to the disciples. And Thomas comes and he worships him. John 20, 28. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Thomas says, My Lord and my 
God to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 Thomas, you got it all wrong. I'm just a nice guy. I'm just a good moral teacher. He doesn't do that. He affirms what he has just said. Jesus never claimed to be just a good moral teacher. He claimed to be God incarnate. I know I've read this quote before, but it's worth repeating from C.S. Lewis. That I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must take, make your choice. Either this man wasn't, is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a good human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The words of the eyewitnesses are very clear that Jesus did not claim to be just another prophet. He claimed to be God incarnate. So how do you explain that? How do you explain that? Well, then those people will go on to say, okay, okay. So maybe the crowds didn't misunderstand. Maybe it wasn't the fault of the crowds. It was the disciples. It was those disciples who did it. The disciples who wrote the New Testament got it wrong. I mean, the disciples after the death of Jesus thought, you know, what can we do to kind of honor this guy who has died? Let's just make a, up a story. Let's just write down a book. Let's just, you know, put down something that's not true. And, you know, and, and it's just a work of fiction. It's not meant to be taken literally, you know. Or maybe they were wanting to make up a new religion. Maybe they were thinking we could form this new religion and through this new religion we'll be able to bring down the oppressive Roman government that's over us right now. So it was the disciples' fault. The disciples just made it all up. It was the disciples who created the myth of Jesus' divinity. Well, what did the disciples say? The disciples were very clear that they were not writing fiction. That was not their intent. 1 John 1, 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The disciples did not claim that they were just writing fiction. Oh, but you may argue, well, of course they're not going to claim that they're writing fiction. I mean, if we're making something up, we want it to be believable. So, just because they say it's true, doesn't mean it is true. I mean, aren't there other religious books that also claim to be the truth? The Quran supposedly was written because Muhammad went into a cave. And while he was in that cave, he had an encounter with an angel. And God himself came and wrote out the Quran and gave it to Muhammad. So Muhammad claims that it's the truth. Why don't we believe him? How about the Mormons? The Mormons believe that God dropped that book down 
And that Joseph Smith was out there and he found, he dug up that book and he found that book and, and he translated it into the Book of Mormon. He says it's the truth. Why don't we just believe him? Well, this is the difference. It's easy to claim that something comes from God because you found it in a cave or you found it buried in the ground. But the difference and the thing that sets apart the New Testament from every other religious document is that it was done in public. The life and the ministry of Jesus was public. It was seen by many, many, many different people. Now, if the disciples had written something that wasn't true, then the people who had witnessed the life of Jesus would have, when the New Testament came out, because it was published in the lifetime of those who were still alive that had seen the life of Jesus, those who knew the truth would have said something against it. They would have said, no, I was there that day, Jesus feeding the 5,000 with a loaf and a couple of fish. No, I was there that day. It didn't happen that way at all. When the New Testament says that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, that he cries out, you know, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out and, you know, he was dead and now he's alive. There were lots of people there that day. Someone surely would have stood up and said, no, 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 I was there that day. No, Lazarus wasn't dead. Or Lazarus never ra rose from the dead. Oh, I, that's, that's a fake. That's, that didn't happen at all. In a matter of fact, just the opposite is true. When Peter stood up at Pentecost, he was able to say this in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. In other words, you can't say anything against this because you know it's true. You were there. You saw the miracles. You witnessed what happened. The disciples could stand and they could publicly declare what had happened because there were witnesses to it. And no one could say anything against it. If I was to write a book today saying that John F. Kennedy had never been the president of the United States, do you think it would sell many copies? No. Because there are people alive today that knew that John F. Kennedy was president. There was a book published a while back that said the Holocaust never happened. What happened when that book was published? People started coming forward. People would say, yeah, what do you mean the Holocaust never happened? And they'd roll up their sleeves and there on their arm was the, ta the tattoo. They said, look at this, I was in Auschwitz. I know the truth, I was there, I saw it for myself. How can you claim that this never happened? And I was there. You see, you can't write a book when the people are still alive who can prove that the book is false. But that is exactly what happened with the New Testament. That the disciples were able to stand up and say to the crowds, anybody not, did, didn't see this? Can anyone disprove this? And nobody could. I think in addition to this, one of the greatest proofs for the reliability of the New Testament is that every one of the disciples went and died a martyr's death for what they believed in. These people 
were burned at the stake. They were crucified upside down. They died in horrible, horrible ways. At any point, they could have simply said, it's a lie. It didn't happen. They didn't have to go to their death. They didn't have to be cruelly tortured. They simply could have said, you know what? It's a lie. It didn't happen. And yet they all died for their faith. Now you may say, oh, there's lots of people in the world today that die for their faith. You know, a guy will set himself on fire because of what he believes in. Some terrorist will strap a bomb to his chest and go into a marketplace and blow himself up. Yeah, but this is the difference. The terrorist that goes into the marketplace with the bomb on their chest truly believes in his cause. He truly believes that when he blows himself up, he is going to heaven. He really, really believes that. And so he's willing to go through with it because of his belief. But if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then the disciples knew it was a lie. They knew it was a hoax. People are willing to die for something that they believe in. But they're not willing to be suffered and to die for something that they know isn't true. It just wouldn't happen. What would have caused a, a small group of illiterate fishermen who were huddled together in fear in an upper room after the death of Jesus, afraid of being arrested, afraid of facing the same punishment? What would have transformed that little band of people into a force that would go out and in one generation would change the entire Roman world if it were not the resurrection of Jesus Christ? crowds did not make it up. The disciples did not make it up. Well, the third argument is this. And this is an argument I hear a lot, especially from Muslims and when we lived in the Middle East. I hear this all the time. Well, it was the early church that made it all up. The early church, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth century, the early church took this myth of this guy called Jesus, this historical figure called Jesus, and they just kind of changed it. And, you know, they did have a, a book that they, that they read, but they changed that book and they added all this stuff to this book that, that was a lie in order to make Jesus into something that he wasn't. So it was the early church that created the myth of Christianity. They, they took, you know, the person of historical figure of Mary Magdalene and, and, they, and they took this other historical figure and, and, they, and, and they made them different from what they are. I mean, you hear this all the time. If we can only get back to the truth of what really happened. The early church couldn't have made it up. And there's a simple reason why. And that reason is because in order to establish if something is historically accurate, you have to take two things into account. You have to take how much of a gap between when the event occurred to when the first actual document exists, and you have to take into, into account how many of those documents actually exist, and how much they correlate or align themselves with one another. You understand what I'm saying? What is the timeline? Because if it's a long, 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 long time, then all kinds of errors can come in. 
and how many documents? Because one document doesn't really prove anything, you know, or, or five documents or ten documents. I mean, they can, be, they can be changed. Well, let's look at what the New Testament is like. Let's look at this next slide. Here you have a bunch of different historical works, which kind of date back to about the time of the writing of the New Testament. But now take a look at this. You have, for example, the work of Herodotus. Herodotus was written in about 488 to 428 BC. Now the very first historical document, that is the very first piece of paper, the very first thing that we have some writing on, some physical proof, dates to AD 900. So if it was written in 488 and it was the earliest copy, AD 900, that means that there is a 1300 year gap between when it happened and when the first book or the first document exists. And in all, there's about eight copies. About eight copies of the works of Herodotus. Ancient documents of the works of Herodotus. And nobody questions whether Herodotus is true. Nobody questions it. And then you go down there. Look at these different things. You go down to like Caesar's Gallic War, 58 to about 50 B.C., Again, the earliest copy about 8,900, 950 years, about nine or ten copies. But then look at the New Testament. The New Testament was written from about 40 AD to at the very, very latest 100 AD. How do we know that this is true? Because of what the New Testament says. Jesus died, we know historically, in about 33 AD. 1 Thessalonians, we know, was written in about A.D. 50. It was one of the first books written. And the reason that we know it was written in Corinth at about 50 A.D. because the Jews had just been exiled from Rome. That is historically something that happened in 49 A.D. We know that Gallio became proconsul in Achaia in A.D. 51, which also is recorded in 1 Thessalonians 3.6. We know that Paul, that's kind of the other end of the New Testament, the last books of the New Testament, Paul was executed by Nero. And we know historically that Nero was Caesar from AD 63 to AD 68. Mark was probably the first of the Gospels that was written. And the last was probably John. And that we know that John was written before 70 AD because it says in John, now there is a gate in Jerusalem. But in 70 AD, that gate was completely destroyed. And so John would say, now there was a gate in Jerusalem if it had been written after 70. But it was written beforehand, so there is a gate in Jerusalem. All that to say this, that all of the books were written sometime between about 40 to most of them about 70 AD. And we have fragments that go back to very, very close to that time. From 30 years to about 300 years when we get into the full Latin copies of the Bible. So you have an extremely small time frame. But in addition to the extremely small time frame, you also have the fact that there were literally thousands of copies of the New Testament that were in existence. You have over 5,000 Greek copies of the New Testament. That's the language it was actually written in. And then it was translated. It was translated into Latin for Gaul, Spain, and Italy. It was translated into Coptic 
and it was translated into Syriac. That's that other 9,300 there down at the bottom. What is that to say? That is to say that you have something like this. This is the Greek New Testament. Of those 5,000 different Greek ancient documents, those 5,000 Greek New Testament versions, copies, come together and they form this one book. And if you open up this book and read through this book, you see in the original language, exactly letter for letter, word for word, what was written in the original languages. And every time, in the Greek New Testament, all the different documents that had any kind of a spelling mistake, one had a comma, the other had a period, one had this, one misspelled the word this, every single mistake from those 5,000 different copies are recorded in this book. And they show you exactly how precise the copying was at that time. That this wasn't just like a Xerox machine, that people took the words, but they were very, very careful about the copying process. Why were there so many copies? Because people took the New Testament and they copied them for churches. And they copied them for individual use. And so you have this huge, huge number of ancient documents that exist. What does that mean? I say all of that to say to you that there is no way that the early church could have changed the message of the New Testament. There's absolutely no way. The time frame is too close. There are too many copies in existence for that to be true. F.J.A. Hott, one of the greatest textual critics who ever lived, said this about the New Testament. He said, in the variety and fullness of the evidence upon which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands alone and unapproachably alone amongst the ancient prose writing. And there is no secular textual critic that would disagree with him. I could go on to say that there are extra-biblical sources that support this. I could go on to say that there are the early church fathers that started peering around, you know, 80, 90 to 100. And, and they began quoting from the New Testament. And if you just look at the quotes that they make from the New Testament, you can compile almost the whole of the New Testament just from their quotes of it. And the quotes that they make align perfectly with the Greek New Testament that we have. That the documents prove it. That they were not tampered with. It would have been impossible. Because they go back again to the time of the eyewitnesses who saw the life and the ministry of Jesus in person. What about all these English versions? How come one English version says this and another English version says that? Well, I mean, okay. If, if you don't want to rely on English versions, learn Greek. <laughs> it's all here. You know, I can loan you my Greek New Testament. Go for it. You know, it kind of looks like low German if you ask me. It's all Greek to me. But, um, you know, if you really want to learn the original language and go back and find out, you know, do that. But, but if you study Greek and then you look at the modern translations, you realize that what we have in English is the exact message of what was given in the Greek. The only difference is sometimes the wording. Now, for those of you who speak Low German, you know that if you say a sentence in Low German, it doesn't sometimes make sense in English unless you turn it all around, right? Because if you translate word for word, the sentence is all backwards. 
You know, the, I'm not going to use an example because I would muff it up. But you know that you can't do a, you can't really do like a word for word translation. And yet that's what some copies of the English Bible do. And that's why they kind of come off sounding a little bit funny. Because they try to do a word-for-word translation. There are other copies of the Bible that take the whole sentence. They take the whole sentence, they look at the grammar, the structure of the sentence, and then they translate the whole sentence into the actual meaning of what it was about. So some are more one way, some are more another way. That kind of accounts for a little bit of the differences. But basically, what you have in the English is exactly what is recorded in the Greek. No other... Religious book can say that. It's very hard to disprove the fact that a man went into a cave and came out with a book written by God. That some guy's in the woods one day and digs up a book made of gold, even though that book no longer exists, even though there's no record of it or, or anything like that. He digs up this golden book and translates, even though he has no knowledge of ancient language this book called the book of mormon very hard to kind of prove or disprove something like that because it speaks of a heavenly encounter that god met with me and this is what happened the new testament is not like that the new testament is a book that is provable it is a book that we can have confidence in Anybody can claim to be God. If I was to stand up here today in front of you and claim that I was God, you would probably start looking for a new pastor. Um, But I'm sure you would say, Pastor Steve's gone crazy. He's off his rocker. You know, he's nuts. Because there are lots of crazy people today that claim to be all kinds of things. They claim to be Napoleon. They claim to be Abraham Lincoln. They claim to be God. And they believe it. Because they're crazy. Right? But now suppose I say this. Suppose I say, okay, I'm God and I'm going to prove that I'm God. I am going to die. My death is going to be verified by medical professionals. It's going to be public, so many people are going to see it. After my death, my body is going to be prepared in such a way that even if I was still alive, I, could, I, I would not be able to exist because my head would be completely banished and I would not be able to breathe. I will be buried six feet under. And then three days later, I would rise from the dead. And I would show myself to many people and prove that I was alive. Now, obviously, I'm not speaking about myself. I'm speaking of Jesus. Jesus claimed to be God, but he not only claimed to be God, he proved in a public and in a verifiable scientific way that he was exactly who he claimed to be. Sherlock Holmes, in one of his books, says this, When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So how do you explain that? C.S. Lewis again said this, We are faced then with a frightening alternative. The man we are talking about was and is just what he said, or else he was insane or something worse. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither insane nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view 
that he was and is God. And let me tell you, C.S. Lewis was, was, was no slouch. C.S. Lewis was a man who studied. He was a man that when he was growing up was very much against the Christian faith. He didn't believe it. He thought it was a fairy tale. He thought it was a myth. But as he studied the New Testament, as he studied the Bible, it changed him. And he had to come to the conclusion that the Bible was and is what it said it was and that Jesus was and is who he claimed to be. And when C.S. Lewis came to faith, he wasn't a happy camper. He described himself as the most dejected, the most you know, miserable man in all of England. But he had to accept the fact that it was true. I just want to encourage you today. The next time someone comes up to you and makes fun of your faith, there is a bedrock basis for it. The next time someone makes fun of this book, saying it's full of myths and old wives' tales and fairy tales. There's a historical proof for this book. Our faith is not just based upon blind faith. Our faith is based upon something that is real and something that is tangible. And you do not have to be ashamed. And you do not have to apologize for what you believe in. Because it is the truth. It is the truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this day. And Father, as we close the service this day, I pray, Father, that you would give all of us the ability, Lord, and the faith to be able to speak of what we know and what we've seen and what we have heard, just like the disciples who wrote the New Testament. That, Father, we would be able to say what God has done in our lives, how he has changed each one of us. And, Father, we would not be ashamed of your word. That, Father, we would not be ashamed of, of our faith. That, Lord, we would know that there is a firm foundation upon which we stand. There is a validity to the things that we believe in. So, Father, make us bold and help us to share the message of salvation, the good news, with other people. We thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us for one last song.